0: Power of Christ to change lives, that's always been one of my favorite testimonies um, of the manabase. Uh, they were in a small group of ours and just fun to see. They're like, yeah, we pulled in here like we did not believe in God at all, but for some reason we just felt this desire to show up in this community and along the way we started to believe who Jesus, that Jesus is who he said he is, the way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the only way to the Father there's a question that goes out i ask it every june i ask it every sunday every june um, why should i not be baptized it's a biblical question i sent you an email about it this week a three-minute video on it and uh there are if you believe jesus is who he said he is there is not a reason that you should not be baptized Um, there's not a familial reason there's not a religious reason this has nothing to do with knowledge Um, your life doesn't have to be fully in order. If you look in the scriptures, what happens is somebody comes to faith and then they just, then they get baptized. Um, it's almost immediate in most circumstances. We only do it once a year. Is it easy to be disobedient to this command? Of course it is. I was for a long time. I was the pastor of this church and had not been baptized. Carrie's got a picture. Carrie, can you put that picture of, so, uh, if you're, if you're going, well, I don't want to out myself, you know, that I've been disobedient to Christ all these years, come on along with me um, and out yourself. This is me and my brother being baptized um, probably in 2000 and, uh, I don't know, a long time ago, um, too long ago. But uh, my testimony would be the same as the Manabé's testimony. It is a defining moment in your life. It is when you draw a line in the sand. It is when you step over the line of faith. If you're not signed up to be baptized two weeks from today, I encourage you to get yourself signed up. If this is your church, um, as your pastor, I would just say it's, it's nearly mandatory that you be here two weeks from today. It's the easiest church Sunday you're ever going to get. Walk around, have some fun, eat some, eat some food truck food, uh, and be an encouragement to those who are being obedient to Jesus. Um, so that's our big day. It's two weeks from today. And before I get started, before, oh, and, and of course, you heard about the class. You don't have to go to the class, but there's a class, short class, after second service today. Because we are not merely a dispenser of religious products and services, we are a, a community church, a family of God. When one hurts, everybody hurts. Um, there is a family in our church. Because we're online, I, uh, and by the way, that baptism invitation goes out to everybody that's part of the online community here at Mendham. And there's a couple hundred of you that watch every week i'd love to see you here in two weeks there's a family in our church whose six-year-old little boy was riding his bike this week and had an accident and he was severely severely hurt Um, and i was texting with his mom just this morning he was medevac icu intubated and all of the rest and all and so far over the last 48 hours the lord has been so good and it's just been um miraculous healing miraculous healing after miraculous healing but, you know, he's still got a little ways to go here. So can I ask you all, I, again, because we're online, I don't want to share names and, and details. But can I ask you all to pray with me for one minute? Lord, um, I know that you love this little boy and this family more, more than we do. You love him more than even his mom and dad do. And so, Father, this morning, as, uh, as his family, as his community church... We come before you, each of us, and we ask that you would do a miraculous, continue this miraculous journey of healing in his life, Father. Bring him through this and out of this completely healthy. And Lord, I pray that you would give an unusual peace to his mom and dad. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody at Mendham said, amen. We've been asking ourselves a pretty serious question over the last bunch of weeks. In fact, we only have one week left in this series after today regarding Jesus' longest known teaching. His most famous teaching, and I think one that is an oft-repeated teaching, you can see that throughout his ministry, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Today, by the way, don't, please, uh, you can hand in these baptism cards, I don't want to get in trouble. If you are thinking about this, hand them in at the Welcome Center, or drop them in one of the boxes. And, if you have questions, there's a Baptism FAQ out at the Welcome Center, you can pick that up on your way out. Now, with that said, back to what I was talking to you about, right? Um... Today, as part of that sermon, we get to, well, I, I would say the absolute favorite, incrementally so too, by the way, the absolute favorite verse of everybody uh, in the United States of America in the Bible. It's coming up this morning, and it has to do with judging others. Biblical literacy literacy in America, I looked this up, is at an all-time low. One expert described it as almost being at a crisis point. Almost nobody knows any, almost anything about what's in the Bible. Most, of, most folks would say, yes, I, you know, I, I, I live by the Bible, but most of us don't know what's in it. But there is one verse that almost everybody seems to know, and our culture knows it better than the Christians do. I'll show it to you in context in a moment, but, but for the sake of your memory, I want you to be able to do this week what most people can never do, which is remember what the sermon was about 15 minutes after you leave church. Which is very hurtful with the amount of work that goes into these sermons. Can I just share that with you? So this morning, we're going we're gonna to do an old King James-like translation of this morning's teaching from Matthew chapter 7, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 1, everybody's favorite scripture. Thou shalt not judge. Everybody loves it. Can I ask you to say it with me? Because I want to drill it in your heads. Ready? Thou shalt not judge. Now I want you to say it like you really mean it. Are you ready? Thou shalt not judge. Which is a lot easier to say than it is to do, isn't it? Piece, An interesting piece I came across in Time magazine. It was entitled, Our Brains Immediately Judge People. Immediately. Isn't isn't that true? It's like hardwired in. What they discovered is, and it's instantaneous. Even if you cannot consciously see a person's face... Our brain is able to make a snap decision about how trustworthy they are, even if you can't quite make out who they are. This study uh, it was in the Journal of Neuroscience. It says that your brain immediately determines how trustworthy a face is based on its fully, based, uh, based before it's fully perceived, which supports the fact that we make snap judgments about people. Researchers at Dartmouth, they showed a group of participants photos of people's faces that were meant to either look trustworthy or untrustworthy, It's been shown in the past, by the way, that that people generally think faces with higher inner eyebrows and prominent cheekbones are trustworthy. And the opposite features are not trustworthy, which the researchers confirmed in the study. This is what, almost universally, we believe to be true. In the second part of the experiment, they showed a separate group of participants, the same images, but for only, listen to this, 30 milliseconds while they were in a brain scanner. Then they did something called backward masking, where they show a participant in an irrelevant image or a a mask, which immediately, quickly, after showing them the face, that procedure makes the brain incapable of processing the face. Even though the patients weren't able to process the face, their brain did. The researchers found, uh, focused on the activity in the amygdala, same piece of the brain we talked about last week that gets us messed up about abundance versus scarcity, Right? Um, And they found that the amygdala amygdala was activated based on judgments of trustworthiness or not trustworthiness. This, they concluded, is evidence. Our brains make judgments on people before we can even process who they are or what they look like. They ended the article saying, keep that in mind the next time you're meeting someone new. No pressure. Fun fact by the studies, by the way. There is something you could do to make yourself appear more trustworthy. Trustworthy. Because judgments on trustworthiness are, are based on your face's musculature, and you can, they can be altered, right? You can, you can smile, essentially, and you will begin, people will perceive you as trustworthy as you smile and don't look angry. But much to my disappointment and discouragement, perceptions of someone's ability are drawn from a face's skeletal structure, which cannot be changed. That's why every week you look at me and go, how is this guy up here? This is why Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is so challenging, if you're honest. It seemingly flies right in the face of even our biology. What do you mean, don't judge? Like, I'm so deep in it, I can't get out of it. Jesus, shortly after talking about not practicing good things like righteousness, prayer, and fasting, and doing them for the wrong reasons, practicing them publicly to gain reward, right after talking about the hypocrisy that would be involved in living like that, Here's what he says. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. There it is. Let's say it one more time, shall we? Because I don't think you're very good at it. Ready? (laughs) Thou shalt not judge. John Ortberg points out. How many exceptions does Jesus allow? Of what kind of people, people, based on their personality, which might drive you crazy, their faults, which are many and deep, their weird religious beliefs, which you know are all just wrong, their sexuality, their sexual orientation, their politics, their tattoos, or just their sheer unlikability, does Jesus say, well, of course you can condemn them. Of course they merit condemnation. Nobody. He gives no exceptions. There are no loopholes. He doesn't say, you know, Try not to make it a habit of judging, or don't judge somebody else unless they really have it coming, and then, of course, you can let them have it. Jesus says, in this new kingdom that he's laying out, there is a zero-tolerance policy for a judgmental spirit. In fact, Jesus, in our kingdom, which is just loaded with judgment, Jesus, when he walked the earth, got in trouble for his refusal to be judgmental towards people who everybody else, especially religious people, judged. We're told one time religious leaders said, quote, "Um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Where people expected Jesus to give judgment and condemnation, they thought that would be the moral thing to do. Jesus, you're a moral leader. Jesus brought Uncomfortably so to to the religious people. Jesus brought welcome and acceptance. In fact, Jesus uniformly extended non-judgmental acceptance to ethnic rejects, to the religious heretics, pagans, Samaritans, the sexually scandalous, the corrupt, traitorous tax collectors he made disciples, to the unclean and the untouched lepers. The only people Jesus condemned, interestingly enough are religious leaders who condemned other people in the name of God. To the religious leaders that that made it a habit of passing judgment, Jesus said, quote, I know you Pharisees burnish, burnish the surface of your cups and plates so you sparkle in the sun, but I know your insides are maggoty, filled with greed and secret evil. Oh, you stupid Pharisees, I've had it with you. You frauds, you're just like unmarked graves. One of the religious scholars spoke up, teacher, do you realize that in saying these things you're insulting us? It's kind of interesting, right? You should read the Bible. It's kind of funny sometimes. Jesus goes, yes, and I could be even more explicit. Why was he so accepting of the unacceptable and so condemning of those who judged? Church, because this is who he is. This is why he came. And the spirit of the Pharisees, the spirit of judgment, is actually an enemy to the mission of God. His disciple John, after recording the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Most of the world cannot quote one Bible verse other than that one. But what if we committed the next verse to memory with it? The very next verse. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Let me just repeat that. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that that the world might be saved through him. Here's the totality of what the scriptures teach. God judged the world a long time ago way back in the garden, right after the fall of man. And ever since, everybody has been found wanting. We all have been judged. We all live under the curse of the power of sin in our lives and in our world. You don't need to do much more than simply turn on the television, watch the news, and you can see the curse we live under playing itself out. Ultimately, we all die. Jesus didn't come to judge anybody. He came to save everybody. And so if this is who he is and why he came and how he lived, well then this is what would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it make perfect sense if if the church, the body of Jesus, the people who bear his name and get his tattoo on them, right? And and the, the people that carry his spirit out into the earth. I mean, the church, the church should be the the most non-judgmental group of people on the face of the earth, right? People on the streets should be so aware of our reputation. And by the way, they were really aware of Jesus' reputation on the streets of his day. So much so that the the, the people farthest from God, the deepest of sinners, called him friend. The people on our streets today, uh, the streets of our town, they should be saying things like, well, you know... My parents don't accept me. My friends have abandoned me. My boss has fired me. My acquaintances have shamed me. I know what I'll do. I know where I'll go. I'll go to the church. I'll find some Christians because that's where I know I won't be judged by anybody. How are we doing on that? Is it not ironic is it not perhaps fueled by the demonic that the church of Jesus is known to be the complete opposite? The complete opposite. As perhaps the most judgmental people on the face of the earth. The least safe place to go. Oh my God, whatever you do, don't go to the church and tell them. And look, if I'm honest, right? If many of you are honest, Deeply embracing this teaching is hard. Not just because not judging is hard. It is. Joan and I were sitting at the fire on Friday night, and we started talking. And, uh, and one of us, there were two of us out there, and one of us said something judgmental. I won't tell you who it was, but, but it wasn't me. And... Um, <laughs> And so I said, well, it's interesting that you say that. I said, uh, this Sunday, I'm actually talking about, you know, what Jesus said about judgment and that we shouldn't judge people. And uh, that's when she threw a log at me. Um, Remember, there's a whole teaching on logs coming up. Now, we were joking because we started realizing half of your conversation involves judging people. So we sat there for, for a good hour and a half, two hours sitting by the fire, had some music on, talking. And all of a sudden, we started realizing every time we said something judgmental. And it was alarming to us Friday night as we sat there going, huh, just did it again. Huh, just did it again. But it's also hard because at one level, right, judging has its place. To fully understand what what Jesus is saying, we've got to understand what he's not saying. What he's not saying is that we shouldn't make moral discernments right? Or that we shouldn't, we should give up on just wisdom and just be rubes. My daughter, Caroline, um, wound up having to have uh, surgery this week and it was quick. It was like di- diagnosis of, of a problem. Surgery, like one guy wanted to do it the same day. And I'm like, "Carrie, you're not getting sur- the surgery on your foot and her ankle and tendons and, and cartilage. You're not getting this done today. Well, why not? And I'm like, because I don't know who this guy is, right? So I to look him up gonna see where he went to school where he went to medical school i gotta read all the reviews i gotta find out about the hospital right why because i'm not called to you know somebody doesn't just go i'm gonna operate on your daughter who are you right we're not called to be like that i didn't just say okay well you know whatever he says in fact actually jesus does call us to judge in this very sermon he's been railing against the pharisees and he and coming up he's about to warn about false prophets how do you discern a false prophet if you don't judge? Jesus is not saying don't discern. He, he's not saying don't be wise. It doesn't mean that you don't discern what's going on with the, the crowd your kids are hanging out with. You, you should. It doesn't mean you shouldn't evaluate the crowd you're hanging around with. You should. It doesn't mean that in our families, in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our homes, in our schools, in our towns, it doesn't mean that we don't use wisdom to discern right from wrong i i I know right now parental rights is a hot topic right do not judge doesn't mean that you don't have any impact or input on your children's education you just sit back and everybody does whatever they want to do we don't do that in classrooms with curriculum and we don't do it on the world stage with dictators and tyrants you know well you know who am i to judge of course we hold people accountable for actions But, and here's where where we fail so miserably, we got to, we must do it without attacking their worth or forgetting their dignity as human beings created by God in his image, loved by him so much that he sent his only son to die for them. Jesus, with judging here, is doing the same thing he's been doing throughout the entire sermon. There are two paths, two roads, two houses, right? One leads to life. One doesn't. And there's two kinds of judging. One uses discernment. It's informed by the teachings of Jesus to discern good and evil and right and wrong. And there's another way to judge. And on the outside, just like those two paths and those two trees and the fruit from those two trees, and the house built on the sand and a house built on the rock, they look very similar. But this other kind of judgment, it comes with a well, it comes with a built-in spirit of superiority of self-elevation, coupled with kind of an other's condemnation and and a personal rejection. Then Jesus states what should be obvious. In fact, this next teaching is why the church is often viewed so negatively by people outside of it. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Don't you understand what's happened? We've received back the same judgment we've put out. Those outside the church have simply measured us with the same measure we've measured them. Just Jesus is really pretty something. He's pretty bright. In other words, we are to judge to the degree and to the extent to the end that we would like to receive judgment back. We have one more talk left in this series, the Sermon on the Out... Uh, Amount ends with what we call the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you This is the golden rule of judgment Judge others the way you would like them to judge you Would you like people to judge you based on your worst day? Then don't judge people based on theirs Would you like people not to judge you based on Your job What you do for a living would you like people not to judge you based on your income Your looks your size, your weight, your sexual history, your past mistakes, your present misunderstandings, would you like them not to judge you based on those things? Then don't judge them that way. Would you like for people to have grace for you when when you're short-tempered and when you screw up? When you make a mistake, would you like people to forgive you when, when, when you disappoint them or hurt them? Do you want just a little bit of judgment or a lot of judgment when you screw up? Which one do you want? Do you want just a little bit of grace, just a little bit of grace, mostly judgment? Or do you want a lot of grace and mercy and maybe just a little correction? I came across a story about Tom Watson this week. He's the CEO of IBM back in the 50s and 60s. And one of his executives made a really bad business decision. And it cost, in the 50s, it cost the company $10 million, a lot of money. And so he, he knew he was in big trouble, so he, he showed up in Watson's office with a letter of resignation already prepared and said to him, uh, I assume I'm here so you can fire me. Watson said, fire you? Of course not. I just spent $10 million educating you. I can't afford to fire you. Get back to work. Can you imagine? John Orpwood points out that after Peter had denied Jesus three times, failed him at his moment of gr- greatest need... He meets Jesus after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And you can imagine Peter walking up to Jesus and saying, I suppose you're going to fire me. Jesus goes, fire you? I just invested a crucifixion in you. I'm in the resurrection business. I'm not in passing judgment business. Get back to work. Feed my sheep. It's like his teachings so far on murder and adultery. Like his teachings on prayer and fasting. This is all a heart issue. Judging is too. It ties back to the hypocrisy he's already addressed about. Our desire to pray and fast in public. These things make us hypocrites, right? And so too does judgmental spirits. We're hypocrites. We want to be judged in one way, right? We want mercy and grace and forgiveness in one way, but we merit it out in a very different way. Why? It's the actual question. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own? Why do you do that? Seriously, why do you do that? Joan and I sat at the fire and I asked her, why why do we do this? And she said, she goes, I think because it makes us feel better. It gives us, just like praying and fasting publicly, it gives us a momentary reward. It, it elevates us above other people. It, it provides excuses for us. Uh, let's be honest, it, it feels good. It makes me feel better about myself. And again, here's Jesus' teaching 2,000 years ago. It keeps getting validated by science today. I, I encourage you to check this out. Most studies conclude we judge for two reasons. The first is that judging is simply our attempt to do what I just said, to create a hierarchy of better than and less than, superior to, inferior to, and to define worth to everyone and everything we meet. We have an innate urge to be right, to be better, to be superior always. And so we have this binary view of of the world around us, and so it necessitates us making judgments, right or wrong, so we judge people. But the second reason that most scientists have discovered we judge people. It's called the projection theory. Carl Jung put it this way. He says, although our conscious minds are avoiding our own flaws, they still want to deal with them on a deeper level, and so we magnify those same flaws in others. Another writer said this, when we judge someone for something, we're actually judging ourselves at the very same thing. We just haven't fully owned or accepted that trait yet within us. A great quote here by American author Earl Nightingale, he said, when you judge others, you don't define them, you define yourself. The world around us, it's like a mirror, and judging somebody doesn't define who they are, it actually just defines who we are. More often than not, the things that we detest and judge are a reflection of things that we cannot accept about ourselves, which brings a lot of context to what Jesus says next. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. There it is again. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out? Well, it's easy, because I don't want to deal with the plank in my own. I see it in myself, too. In fact, I, I hate it in me. So here's the way I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to elevate it in you. Because if I elevate it in you, it, man, it makes me feel a lot better about my, my issue. Jesus goes, what are you doing? Don't be a hypocrite. A good question to ask yourself when it comes to judging. When you find that spirit in yourself, right? Which, trust me, will be often, right? A good question to ask yourself is, wh- where is this in me? What am I judging in them that I actually see in me? By the way, Jesus never said not to help your brother remove the speck from his eye. It's just a priority thing. First remove the plank from yours, and then, I love the words, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's. Now, keeping in mind that what Jesus is teaching here is not not to not use discernment and wisdom to evaluate relationships and circumstances, he actually does give guidance Related to judgment John his disciple records him telling the Pharisees the professionally righteous of the day Stop judging by mere appearances But instead judge correctly goes with the whole sermon, right? Stop looking at the outside Don't evaluate people and places and circumstances and relationships. Don't just base them on what you see You know where I do this all the time? You ever be sitting on a plane and you've got a middle seat in between you and the other guy? And the plane's almost full. And then you see the person walking down the aisle. And I, my ju- I have judgment flags go off. Every- oh, dear God, no. Right? <laughs> what am I judging on? Pure outward appearance. They look one way on the outside, right? But what if on the inside they're quite different at- I've shared this story before. There was a professional athlete that made such a big deal of his Christian testimony. And one day they showed his house. This guy lived on a house that that took over the top of a mountain. I mean, it wasn't a house. It was a a castle and a cathedral put together. I had never seen anything so, so grandiose in my life. And I remember I was standing right in front of my TV and I'm going, oh, so distasteful. And he calls himself a Christian. Literally, it was went through, through my mind, and I immediately had this, you know, I, I, I've never heard God audibly, but I had this visceral reaction in my spirit from God that goes, dude, you could live in a one-bedroom apartment. You don't. For all you know, that man gives 95% of his money away. You live on 90% of yours. Why do, why do I do that? Because I judge based on appearances. I don't know what's going on. And Jesus says, don't just judge by appearances, right? Don't just judge, uh, he says, judge correctly. And also, don't judge hypocritically. And Paul would double down on it. There's a famous book in the a, a verse in the book of Romans. Now, Paul was a Pharisee, right? He was the professionally righteous guy, of which he was the best of the best of the best. He was the most righteous guy. He, Paul would argue that if you looked at the exterior of his life, there was nothing you could find where he was screwing up. But then Paul meets the resurrected Jesus, and he realizes that on the inside, even though it looked great on the outside, on the inside, he was no different than anybody else. In fact, at one point he calls himself the chief of sinners. And so he writes to the church in Rome. And chapter 1, the church has been holding this chapter over the cultures, over the world's heads for years. Because it speaks about all the things that people that are far from God do. I'll, I'll give you his summation of this. Here's what he, he, he wrote at the end of chapter 1. And remember, when he wrote it, it wasn't in chapters. Furthermore, just as they did not... He's talking about people outside of the walls of the church. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, arrogant, Boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but they approve of those who practice them. Yeesh. Yeah, get them. Where's the pitchfork? Anybody notice one word that got used over and over and over? They, 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 they. It's like a drumbeat. Very next verse. Yeah, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment, there it is, on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Why would that be? Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet you do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Anybody notice a different word used there? You. You, 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 you do the same things. It's all equated to the heart, right? It's God's job to judge, not yours. Stop usurping God's job. He's much better at it than you are, by the way. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. I love the last sentence. I wish we could all memorize this one on judgment, when it comes to judgment. He he goes, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, which is what God has had on those who are following him, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, what is supposed to lead people to change their mind? God's kindness. What Paul's saying here in other places is that passing judgment on people, that doesn't lead anybody to, to God. Judging them is not what's going to get them to change or to reconsider or to rethink or to repent. Waving a judgmental finger in the face of people that are far from God is not going to draw them closer to God. It's just going to push them away. We don't lead with judgment. We lead with kindness. God intended it that way. You see the word there? God's kindness is intended. It has a purpose. And what does God's kindness intend to do? To lead people to rethink. Which I can't help but wonder. Maybe why the church has lost so much ground in our culture. We misunderstood our role and our message. We thought it was to lead with judgment. We're going we're to lead with judgment for everybody outside, but on the inside here, we need, you know, we're going to take it easy on each other, amen? Paul actually explains it the exact opposite way, which is really weird. He planted a church in the city of Corinth. Here's what he wrote to that church. He goes, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Implied answer, none. None of my business. If Jesus didn't come to judge, why would Paul? Why, why would we? But now if that makes you uncomfortable, how about this next sentence? Are you not to judge those inside? Wait, what? We do the exact opposite. We judge people outside and we give a pass to those on the inside. Paul goes, no, 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 you got it wrong. That's not the way it goes. You don't judge people who make no claim to be part of the kingdom of, of God by the standards of a kingdom they never signed up for. They're not citizens in it. They don't claim a place in it. Why would you expect people to obey the laws of a nation that they're not citizens of? And Paul would say, why is it any of your business? Why are you worrying about it? But Paul would say, when somebody's claimed citizenship in the kingdom of God, when they swear allegiance to this new king and claim Jesus as Savior, when they're part of the church, when they've made a free will choice to surrender to God, then of course those of us in the church have every right to judge them, But not for the wrong reasons, not to elevate ourselves or lower them, but to gently remove a speck from their eye, to come alongside and encourage and win back. And he concludes with the same message we've seen a couple of times. God will judge those outside. Why do you feel like you have to do it? You can let it go. You don't have to do that. Jesus concludes this story with a two-sentence parable. It is so misunderstood. But when you place it in its context, it makes so much sense. It's about human nature. It's about why you no longer get invited to your neighborhood block party. And it's, it's about why your children don't listen to you anymore. Here's how he concludes this little thing. Really, really quite. I mean, Jesus is so good. He goes, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, for generations, this has been taught that what Jesus is doing here is he's warning his followers, don't waste your time with people that are really far from God. Some people are just so, like, dirty. Some people are just so lost and and despicable and sinful. Don't even waste your time with them. Of course, that's what happens when you just pluck a verse out of its context and you don't look at the context in which it was given and and understand it through the lens of the entirety of the scripture. Jesus has been teaching over and over again, don't judge others. Why in the world would he immediately say, oh, except for these dogs and pigs that are so far from God, you shouldn't even bother with them. Why would Jesus, think about this, friends, why would Jesus who spent his whole life In fact, part of the reason he got crucified was he spent so much of his time with the people farthest from God. The Jews of Jesus' day had a nickname for the people of the city of Samaria. The Samaritans were called derogatorily dogs. They they would refer to them as the, the people in Samaria, the Samaritan dogs. Jesus comes on the scene and he tells a parable where the Samaritan is the hero. You've heard of it. We talk about it all the time, the good Samaritan. Jesus would, in his most famous parable, the story of the prodigal son, he would speak of the prodigal son. He was at his lowest point, right, when he was, when he's down feeding pigs. And yet he was welcomed home radically by the Father. And so could Jesus now, after all of this, be saying, yes, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? Oh, yeah, but before I wrap this up, let me just leave one more little piece of commentary here. By the way, there's some people that are so far from God, just forget what I said because they're dogs and pigs and it's not worth it. That's the way this has been taught traditionally. But that's not what he's saying at all. This isn't a commentary on dogs or pigs. It's a commentary on those who are trying to, who who have the responsibility charged to them for the dogs and the pigs. The problem with giving a pearl to a pig is not that the pig isn't worthy. The problem is a pearl is not a helpful thing to give to a pig. Jesus is is actually getting to a much deeper problem in human relationships With wisdom that could actually save your friendships and your marriage and your relationship with your kids. Sometimes the pearl you know you have, right? It's so wonderful to you. You want to give it so badly to those you care about, thinking it'll be helpful. And then you try so hard to force it on somebody. If that pearl is the kingdom of God... If if the kingdom of God is this upside-down, inside-out kingdom that we've been talking about in this sermon over the last weeks, if you take that kingdom teaching and you bring it to people and you lead first with judgment on them, telling them how wrong they are, how right you are, this isn't how you relate the gospel message to people. I have a dog named Moose. In fact, he woke me up just last night throwing up next to my bed, which I appreciate him for. (laughs) He wakes us up every morning because uh, Joan, his mother, um, feeds him. And uh, so when he wants to eat, whenever the sun comes up, Moose comes in and starts crying, right? Imagine if I decided to take that duty over and I went down every day and I filled Moose's dog bowl with a pearl. Now, Moose is not all that bright. He does not understand that a pearl would be of much greater value than the kibble I'm filling it up with, right? But he doesn't understand it. And if I keep putting pearls in place of puppy chow, eventually, when I'm sleeping, moose is going to begin smacking on me. Right? This is why the culture is taking big bites out of us. We have related to them the wrong way. We have become pearl pushers. We have it right, you have it wrong, we're superior, you're inferior, we're in, you're out, our motives are good, yours are terrible, Jesus is forbidding the practice of pearl pushing. When you try to push your pearls, your, your wisdom, your way, your will, your superior knowledge, when you try to push it onto somebody and they don't want it, even when it's, even if it's right, pearl pushers just, just drift into the habit of criticizing more naturally than, than encouraging. That's, that's what we do. The Apostle Paul would, would write to the church, let us therefore stop turning critical eyes on one another. That's what pearl pushers do, right? We lead with what's wrong with them. Pearl pushers take it upon themselves to correct everybody else because they notice all the places where everyone else is wrong. You know, part of love is not just knowing what to say. It's knowing when to say it. And maybe when not to say it. I love this from the book of Proverbs. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing right? It's a pearl pusher. Good motive. Wrong place. Wrong time. What Jesus is saying is, learn your approach. And much of your approach has to do with the fact that you are judging people. If you find that your Christian witness has somehow gotten you disinvited to your block party, if your Christian witness has somehow gotten your kids to move away from God, right, not towards God. If you're leading with judgment that comes from a critical heart or a judgmental spirit, if you force onto others what they don't sense they need or want, it won't be accepted and they might bite back. Many a young, fired-up Christian has done this. Many a parent intending to bring their children to faith have lost them by pushing pearls. And so what do you do? You, You spend a little bit of time focusing not just on the pearl, but a little bit of time at least focusing on the pig. Not just on Jesus and his righteousness, but on the sons and daughters that he died for. Understand where people are, what they need, how they might best receive and understand the kingdom of God. uh, My friend Gary explained the verse that Christians get wrong all the time. Train up a child in the way he should go, and in the end he won't depart from it. That's not just like push your pearls on them. That's understand their bent, their natural direction, the way God created them. Lean into that. And so, I hope you'll remember what this message is about. Does anybody remember what this message is about? What is it? Let's say it together one more time. Thou shalt not judge. And when you get out in the foyer and the second service is coming in, and they ask you, how was this morning's service? What are you going to say? Amen. Stand and (laughs) sing.